This is the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. How about my parents with a foresight have given me that middle name? Comes in handy sometimes. Good day. (laughs) Good day. What am I, Australian? Good morning. Good afternoon. Whatever it is, whatever time it is, thanks for being a part of this audio recording file. We like to call the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. This is number five. It's directly connected to guess what number? Yes, number four. It's part two in a two-part series conversation I'm attempting to have around the concept of scapegoating. So if you haven't listened to four, you need to go back and listen to that. Although if you had to choose between the two, definitely go with this one. Because on this one, you won't have to hear me talk as much because I'm interviewing a new friend of mine. Her name is Lindsay Paris Lopez, and she's a part of the ravenfoundation.org. Her and her colleagues at the Raven Foundation are doing really important work about and writing and talking and YouTubing about uh, nonviolent atonement, and in particular, how to read scripture through uh, the lens of Rene Girard. And so if you've heard me talk at all, uh, you know I talk a lot about Rene Girard. And if you haven't heard me talk, I I don't know what you've been doing with your life. I mean, what else is there to do? But Girard has been an instrumental person in my life to help me kind of, um, well, I think to read read the sacred text in healthier, better ways, ways that lead me towards love, which I do think is the point. And if you haven't had an opportunity yet, feel free to leave some stars and some likes, leave a good review if you like what's going on here, because that seems to help other people when they see you following and subscribing and those kinds of things. Share it with friends and family. If you want to track me down online, All that stuff's in the show notes or on my profile, Facebook's Twitter feeds, those kinds of things. You can also find me on Amazon. I've got a couple of books out. I've got a third one that hopefully will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. I feel like I keep saying that every every week lately, but gosh, it's a lot of work to put a book together. It's true. It's never been easier to publish a book, but that doesn't mean it's easy to publish a book well. There's so much stuff that goes into it. So uh, I'm working on all that, and the copy editors are working on it right now. But the first couple of books were about loss and grief. The third book, in a way, is about loss and grief. It's about the questions that I posed to my former denomination about sexuality that then put them in a position where they felt like they had to uninvite me from their group, which I think is unfortunate on a whole bunch of levels. The book is about the questions that I posed to my former group that ultimately they were unable to really navigate at any level at all. It's not necessarily that I'm identifying a brand new position that no one's ever heard of. It's just literally saying, hey, here are some questions. And when you begin to posit answers to these questions, the answers don't fit within our paradigm. So what do you want me to do with this and how do we proceed And of course, 
the um, the former group was unable to navigate that. And in that way, they're not unlike a lot of, you know, pretty conservative, quasi-fundamentalist, evangelical groups in the sense that they've already created a particular structure and it's fine on one level. Everyone has their own rules and this is how they've operated. And I recognize it would be, well, obviously in my case, it was impossible for them to think of it in any different way, except it's still incredibly frustrating and challenging when you consider that no matter what these folks think, they do rally around Jesus, the most gracious person who's ever lived. You would think for those of us who've rallied around the most gracious person who's ever lived, we could have enough grace to give to one another to at least navigate issues of sexuality. But we don't. Why? Well, I have a whole bunch of different theories on why that is. That's a part of the reason I'm putting this podcast together. And it's a major reason why I wrote the book that again will be out in a few weeks. And a big piece of all of that, I think, has to do with scapegoating our misguided, if I can be so bold as to say, sense of justice and sacrifice in what God's view is of all of us. And because of that, it has put us in a position where we've had no other recourse in the past. We've had no other path to take other than to exclude the LGBTQ plus person, like just categorically across the board. And I think it's wrong. I don't think that's what Jesus demonstrated when he walked this earth, as best as I can tell, reading the gospel stories. And I think if Jesus were alive right now, I think he would be hanging out with all kinds of people from all different backgrounds. But unfortunately, a lot of our religious structures don't allow us to think that freely which is not only bad for the people being excluded and scapegoated in this context, LGBTQ+, but here's the thing, it's also bad for the rest of us because we're attempting to use power in a way to define grace and love, and literally that defeats the real power of grace and love. A grace contained is not grace. It's something else. Grace is uncontainable. Well, I told you this wasn't about me. This was about talking to Lindsay, so I apologize for getting carried away there. So let's get to her interview, and I do apologize for the recording. Wow, I'm apologizing a lot, which actually is not a bad thing to do. You should probably work that in multiple times a day, so I'm sure I have a few more to go. But I apologize for the recording, uh, because look, man, I'm figuring technology out just like you. Sometimes it doesn't go as well, but you'll still be able to hear. She has great things to say. I'm thankful for her time. But first, I really need to listen to about four bars of cool music. This is. Is this is this Jonathan? <laughs> it is. <laughs> I Hi. Guess we got we got that part right. Yeah. Very nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you too. Thank you yeah. for calling. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. <laughs> I appreciate you taking time and uh and just look forward to our conversation. I became aware of you through the Raven Foundation. Um 
Is it ravenfoundation.org? That's right. Yes, the ravenfoundation.org. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, we have a blog on Pathios called Teaching Nonviolent Atonement, where we have more recent writing. Good, good. Well, I became aware of that probably a year, year and a half ago, and it's been a really uh, helpful tool for me uh, these last 18 months or so, in particular the Girardian lectionary. Almost a week doesn't go by that I'm not during the liturgical Christian calendar year, not not checking that. So thanks for what you guys do. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Either throughout the conversation or somewhere at the end, I definitely want to ask you about, you know, scapegoating and violence as it as it plays out in maybe like lowercase v violence. And I'm thinking in terms of doing myself and. I shared with you just a you know a little bit about our story, but um, getting um, uninvited from my denomination is just mm. brought up a lot of really interesting. Like I, I spend my some of my time uh, trying to just assess what what that means and how how would someone like you or how how would you imagine um, Gerard or uh, someone would view that kind of stuff and yeah and how that it sounds. Out. That sounds very difficult. I mean, <laughs> it's interesting. It is, yeah. and I have no, you know, I, I don't really have any desire, and I'm really thankful for this. I think this is a work of love in my heart. I really don't have any desire to um, speak poorly of them necessarily. I'm really just, I'm trying to continue to figure out healthy ways to look at it and to uh, to understand it because it's it's really fascinating. But anyhow, mm-hmm. I thought maybe we'd start with having you just kind of unpack what uh, mimetic theory is and how, how would you explain that to lay people? Okay, well, mimetic theory is, it's actually, um, it's enormous, but it's actually fairly simple. You know, we talk about how... Um, You've probably, everyone's probably familiar with the Thomas Merton quote, no man is an island, and mm-hmm. I would expand that to women. Um, no, one is, no one is an island, no person is an island, means that we are all, um, we all need each other, we're all influenced by each other. Mimetic theory takes that a little bit deeper and says we are actually designed um, to be formed in relationship to each other. It's actually, it's not just that other people influence us. It's deep in our, deep in our um, social DNA. We are programmed to learn um, not just our behaviors and not just facts and, and other, and things from each other, but we are programmed at the deepest levels of our desires to learn from each other. So we learn what to desire from each other. We learn what to love from each other. We have an impact on each other at at the very deepest levels. So, you know, advertisers get this, that we don't, you know, that we don't um, just spontaneously want something mm-hmm. we 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 have our wants and our desires me, mediated to us and um 
therefore we all we're all so influenced by each other but one of the things that we really want that we all want and that we 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 partly want this because we know that others value it is we want originality and authenticity yeah. and we want to say that we are the authors of our own desires and obviously we want to say that we are responsible for our own achievements um mm. But it's a little deeper. It's deeper than that. We are um, we are constantly influenced by models, but we're not carbon copies of each other because we all have different role models. We have different, you know, we have different influences on our lives, and um, we're impacted by different people that we choose to admire and different people who who influence us in whatever environments we may live or interact in. Mm-hmm. So we're not carbon copies, but we are all we are we do all need each other and we're all indebted to each other and the way that the combination of models and influences play out in our in our thoughts and ideas and behaviors um there it's always a unique combination so we are unique and yet we are also interconnected we are not individuals but interdividuals so mimetic theory is a theory of you know the it's a theory that says that to be human is to be interconnected to other humans and so that's part one and part two is um, it really shines a light on things like conflict and violence, but there's a positive side to it too. It can also shine a light on cooperation and working together. Mm-hmm. But starting with competition and rivalry and the way that um, sort of escalates into violence, a lot of people, you know, we like to focus on how we might be violent because we don't understand each other or because of our differences that might make us, um, you know, that might form rivalries because we, because we disagree so much. But actually uh, what Rene Girard emphasizes is that a lot of our conflict um, just simply goes to mutual desires that we don't want to share. So if we desire the same thing, then we argue over it and fight for it. And that's, I mean, that's something easy to understand on a very simple level. And we can, we can, you know, observe that with children fighting over a toy and everything. But um, as we get older, some of the things we want are more complex than just material things. We want we want, um, you know, we might fight over a mutual love interest or we might fight over a job, a position, or we want influence. We want power. We want prestige. We want recognition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we could be in rivalry with someone who has very different ideas, but we want the same thing, which is influence. I mean, I mean that's that's kind of what politics is. The people are vying for the same position of power 
and the same ability to pull the levers of power, and they're also vying for the same people to be on their side. They might okay. have very different ideas, but but um, at at the core, they really want there's something in common that they both want. Um, yeah, that that piece of it is really fascinating to me. That um, what I keep trying to wrap my head around is, in in a sense, it's not our differences then that inspire the um, competition or whatever. It's exactly our our sameness. Yeah, we are in danger of becoming what we fight when we kind of lose sight of what we're striving for in the midst of our rivalries. So mm-hmm. there is a danger of um there is a danger of becoming what we don't want to become in the midst of the fight and I think that the way to avoid that danger is to keep our eyes on what we're struggling for rather than who we're struggling against. Yeah. yeah. I've, uh, I've thought a lot lately about um, the, it, it's interesting, like in my little world, I, I didn't necessarily have a desire to stand up against someone. I just recognized at some point that my commitment to stand with people who are marginalized uh, like almost forced me in a position to then stand up to others. And I, I thought of that when you were talking about that and trying to keep, you know, trying to remind ourselves that we're, that we're not necessarily, and I don't know if that's true in every situation, but it seems healthy to me to think in terms of not so much who you're fighting against, but who you're trying to stand up for. Absolutely. We all have to struggle for the things we love. Right. We all right. do. And, um, and you know, and that can be a very, um, you know, it, it's it's hard work, and you feel mm-hmm. it in your soul, and it feels kind of like a fight. But I prefer mm-hmm. to say struggle for rather than fight against. Me too. Me too. I think that we can stay away from that other language as long as we can. That's probably helpful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Exactly. And so, yeah, when you stand with the marginalized, mm-hmm. you. It, there does come a point when you necessarily have to, um, you know, say what is hurting, what yeah. is hurting these, these people, and you have to recognize that, and I think you have to name that, and I think yeah. that, I think that um, the difference between speaking up for something or someone in love and speaking out against is. Are you are you trying to help the person you love? Um, are you keeping that at the forefront? And are you speaking the truth in love um, mm-hmm. with the hopes of with the hopes of transformation and not just accusation or you know sometimes sometimes in the midst of an argument or fight we want the other person to be as bad as possible to right. make our goodness shine against well, just, it. It makes it easier. <laughs> it makes it easier and it just makes us feel righteous. And mm-hmm. I I can just say right now, I'm not immune to that. And mm-hmm. I I think few people are. Um, I won't say nobody. There are people I admire who really seem to stay away from that. But mm-hmm. And I think that's a mimetic pool. Um, pull for us to to want to um, 
just the desire for victory over enemies is something that we learn to desire from each other, and it's really yeah. hard to get away well, from it. And what about just the mimetic desire that you just mentioned of people that we admire that do stay away from it? Yeah. When we're influenced in a positive direction, um, that's called positive mimesis. It's a wonderful thing to be influenced by others, and we're not in competition. We exist in community and communion, and we are thankful for those who push us to be better people, not against them, but just for the world that we're living in together. Yeah, I think that's so um, so hopeful and so interesting. Um, I grew up playing, I played a lot of sports, and, and that's been a part of my world in the past although I'm old now and I have no more skills. But what um, <laughs> is interesting is how, you know, competition is at the root of sport, uh, of sport, and it obviously can get out of control. And then other times I think that are helpful about it. But as I've talked to um, athletes, you know, who are younger, I've just found myself as I get older saying, you know, just reminding them that life isn't a competition, that life is actually a gift. And, and the only thing you can do with a gift is just to say thank you. Oh, that's to, beautiful. That's and beautiful. To to that. um, and that's, that's really helped me because, yes, competition can just, in our culture, can take over athletics or business or how about church? Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Churches. Um, yeah, churches with, within a church itself and then yeah. within a denomination, between denominations, yeah. between faiths. Um, yeah. yeah, I and I mean, I, I enjoy sports and I enjoy, um, I can be really competitive when it comes to things like Scrabble. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, as long as what really matters is the enjoyment of the game, I think that, yeah. I think that's, I think that's key. I think that's key. Have you used any Girardian terms ever when you played Scrabble? (laughs) That's a great question. I mean, what would scapegoat? What would that be worth? Like I'm a triple. Oh my gosh! (laughs) Oh yeah. Uh, Well, you'd have to play it off as another word because it's too many letters. And um, well, if if that ever happens, you should just just retire on the spot. I will have my camera ready and take a picture of it. Yeah. Game. Um actually actually And I think there's anthropological evidence backing this up. Like pre-human species have mm. have um, destroyed each other in the conflicts that arise. Um, and the scapegoat kind of came about spontaneously when com- when conflict got so out of hand that everyone was fighting everyone because everyone shared the same desires, but saw through a lens of scarcity and not being mm-hmm. able to share. I must have what you have because it was mine in the first place because I wanted it because I couldn't see how your desire for it influenced mine and vice versa. So everyone thinks that they have a right to everything 
and fight over it. Okay, so that's going on in like early, early humanity or even proto-humanity, and it leads to a kind of um, a kind of crisis where everyone's fighting everyone, and the scapegoat would be someone against whom people could unite and all of this pent up from frustration that's going back and forth in different directions could be could just be channeled on to someone who maybe stands out in a little way maybe a little different uh the choosing of a scapegoat is is arbitrary but there's often something that makes someone stand out. Maybe this is a foreign person or maybe mm-hmm. maybe a hunchback, maybe some kind of some kind of physical abnormality, something that just that makes just, them different. Just makes them different. Just just so that people can latch on so that yeah. so that they stand out from the crowd and then you know, peop like the theory is people would channel their frustrations against this against this scapegoat and come together to expel or murder. I mean, at the beginning, I think it was just murder this person. Mm-hmm. When com- when conflict got so out of hand that everyone was fighting everyone because everyone shared the same desires but saw through a lens of scarcity and not being mm-hmm. able to share, I must have what you have because it was mine in the first place because I wanted it because... I couldn't see how your desire for it influenced mine and vice versa. So everyone thinks that they have a right to everything and fight over it. You see people uniting against a common enemy now. And I think it's it's probably nowhere more clear than in politics. I, I know that a lot of people, including people in my family, including me sometimes, are just energized by, you know, hating a particular person and I've yeah. got a very particular person in mind but I don't have to name <laughs> I, that person. I can't imagine who that would be. <laughs> I don't have to name that person because number one it's the phenomenon works so well that I don't even think I have to name the person but right, also right. it could be a different person for different groups. Sure. Um, but the the way the scapegoating phenomenon works is we do tend to rally our our frustration around someone in particular, and sometimes it could be a group in particular, and um, just blame our troubles. And it's it's not like it's a very conscious choice. Right. It's not obvious. Um, it, mm-hmm. It's weird how it's not subtle, but it's also not obvious at the same time until you're kind of already knee-deep in it. Exactly. In some ways, it can stave off conflict at the expense of at the expense of a victim or victims. Um, yeah, that's that's what I was going to ask you, Denise, because I find that super interesting. If I understand it, if I'm processing it correctly, that actually the scapegoating mechanism it doesn't just create conflict; it also unites people in a way that helps them. Uh, would it be safe to say, like, kind of control conflict as much as conflict can be controlled? Yeah, yeah, it can it can control conflict, which is um which becomes to, almost its primary reason if I understand correctly that it that it continues to be uh accessed and used. 
Right. Right. It's not it's not a good thing, but it serves a purpose that people have deemed good. Otherwise it wouldn't keep happening. You know, well, and otherwise it, and it, it would, works. And yeah. It's effective. Yeah. 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 It can be very it can be very effective. Um now Gerard points to Jesus as someone who and not just Jesus, but the the um, prophets before him, but especially Jesus as one who um, sort of started unraveling the scapegoating mechanism. And it's in the Gospels a lot um, when Jesus says, I come not to bring peace, but division. Mm-hmm. You know, the peace that comes from a unity over and against a victim is not the kind of peace that Jesus participates in or or if he does, it's in a completely subversive way because he becomes the victim that others unite against. But since his death and resurrection, the point is to see that God is with the victims, not against them. How beautiful is that? It is beautiful. And it means we will not reach peace through victimization and blame Mm -hmm. anymore. And that doesn't stop. It doesn't, necessarily stop us from trying, but peace will not be achieved that way. Peace will Mm -hmm. only be achieved when we recognize everybody as a child of God. And, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and I mean, that in particular, I I don't mean to exclude atheists or agnostics or people of other faiths. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have to believe the same things about God. What Mm -hmm. What I think we have to do is recognize the full humanity of everyone. Yeah. And that is... Are you suggesting um, that God loves everybody? Absolutely. Come on. I am. That's crazy. God does love everybody. Yeah. denomination that that jettisons a pastor and their and the entire congregation what how would you explain that and i'm not asking you to try to defend me necessarily because you don't even know a little bit i mean shoot once you got to know me you may not even like me so (laughs) um well no i as i get to know you through this conversation (laughs) i am liking you but um yeah, there is there is a lot to unpack there. Um, yeah. I think that, first of all, um, for those who say this is just another example of religion creating violence, I would say, you know, you're not that far off to think that because mm-hmm. what I want to do when people say things like that is try to meet them where they are and find the truth and what they're saying. And the truth is there is a strong connection between religion and violence, but there's also a strong connection between religion and the cure to violence. So so the way I unpack that is um, 
The Bible in particular is a story of humanity coming to understand itself and coming to know God and God revealing God's self to humanity. I feel like violence um, became associated with the sacred because because of the way conflict can get out of hand so naturally in humanity. When there was a crisis situation and people were fighting each other and then a scapegoat was found, you know, that was seen as transcendent. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. Gerard says that's basically where where religion and culture come from, is like the way that humans formed community always over and against someone. Mm-hmm. So the idea that that um, communities are are founded over and against someone, and you can see that today in in political parties and sports teams and all kinds of things where we understand our identity very much by who we're against. That yeah. plays out in religion too. You know, Scripture calls on people to be their best. I think it also has people misunderstanding God and 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 taking the worst of God and you know finding their own security in having a God who would kill their enemies. So Scripture mm-hmm. has both in it. Scripture has interpretations of mercy and interpretations of sacrifice, and it does not fall neatly between the two testaments at all. There's sacrifice and mercy mercy in both testaments and people have tried to make sense of it by saying it's the same God and it's all true and therefore um, and therefore we have to hold these things in tension and they 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 perceive a God who's both loving and exacting punishment denominations and churches will will have this this view of God that that doesn't see the violence of God in Scripture as humans misunderstanding. That's what Gerard helps me understand, that the violence of, that's attributed to God is sort of projected onto God. It's mm-hmm. human violence, and mm-hmm. God is all-loving. And, you know, it does say that in Scripture. It says, God is love, and in God there is no darkness. And I, I take that to mean, you know, any time you thought God was ordering genocide or killing firstborn of Egypt, that wasn't God. But mm-hmm. you saw God in that because you saw, number one, power, and you saw your own security in that. Um, but the, you know, the next step is to see that God's power and security lie not in hurting others, but by standing with those who are hurt. So that's a lot to say, um, but I think that I think that churches that would dismiss someone for any reason probably have a sacrificial understanding of God, and probably have an uh, have a sacrificial and loving understanding of God at the same time. But yeah, but there's there's also just a very human element that if someone comes in with a different perspective on scripture that's a challenge to human authority and that Mm -hmm. is um you know at a time when churches are declining that can be very scary and and it's not just churches you know a lot of in in political arguments and all kinds of arguments 
um, if someone challenges our authority, a big reaction is to double down. And there's a mimetic pull towards people who say strong, pithy things that don't yeah. go into too much nuance, but, you know, this kind of I'm right, you're wrong tends to attract people because it's so strong and so confident. And I do not know if this applies in your situation, but I think in a lot of situations, there's a kind of, there's a kind of admiration that manifests in fear as well. It, you know, like a kind mm -hmm. of, if you weren't a threat to me, if, if you weren't someone who I think people could take seriously, then you wouldn't be a threat to me. And so if I'm going to dismiss you, then I'm taking you seriously enough to think that you could turn people away from me. There's a kind of, there's wow. a kind of unhealthy rivalistic admiration that's, in that. That's very interesting. I had not thought of that. If you admire someone, potentially you recognize their ability to influence others. And so the fear of that uh, fuels your need to, scapegoat them and excommunicate mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm latching even... onto that because it makes me, hey, now it makes me feel like, oh, no, maybe I was in a really strange way admired. Well, <laughs> if that helps you feel better, that's good because we all need to feel better in this world. That's, that's basically all I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to figure out ways to make me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I honestly think that there's truth in that. And there may it may even be that they're not as – that they're as worried about your influence on them as they are on your influence on, on others. On, the, on that's, others, yeah. yeah. That's, that's um, I mean, it's possible. It's wrap up maybe just um tell me about how how the nonviolent atonement has is saving you and is helping you personally and how it's made a personal difference for you honestly um i don't know what my faith would be without without an understanding of nonviolent atonement. Um, you know, my background is that I grew up the daughter of a strong Christian mother and an atheist father. And so I loved my church very much. It was a place where I felt at home. Um, and if I didn't love my church, I probably wouldn't have tried so hard to have faith. But... Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I always worried about, first of all, my father's salvation, but then about my own, too, because I didn't know if I could believe the things that um, his lack of faith illuminated to me. Doubts and worries were always on my mind because, you know, I saw from the very beginning that Noah's Ark wasn't about cute little animals. It was about... Right. It was about God destroying the world and what's right. up with that. I mean, and I, the story of the liberation from out of Egypt is another thing. Like, 
you know, I couldn't look past the dead babies. And then, mm-hmm. and the, and the, and the cross never made any sense to me. Um, but I was supposed to see that as the ultimate sign of God's love. And now I do. But if I had to see that as, as, um, God sacrificing himself to himself to absolve himself from the wrath that we deserve, I, you know, that never made any sense. And I tried so hard to think about it. And I tried so hard to understand it. Scripture gets human violence right, and it gets human misattribution of that violence onto God right as well. Like, it's yeah. not that Scripture is yeah. just lying. It's that humans really understood that, that violence to be right. divine, and we have to come through a process of recognizing that that this violence, that the violence is our own, and it's not on God, but God is there. God is love, and God is guiding us away from our own violence this whole time. If I didn't, if I didn't understand it that way, I don't think I would understand it at all. But now I have a way of reading scripture, not um, not necessarily literally, but of seeing where the metaphors for human violence are and, you know, understanding God, understanding the Satan or the spirit of accusation in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Gerard helps me with all of that. And if I didn't have that, I don't think I would have a... Um, I don't know where my faith would be. I don't know if I would have been able to keep up with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's very fascinating, and I agree with you on so many points, and uh, I'm really thankful to be on the similar kind of journey. I don't know where I don't know where I'd be either. So thank God for, I guess, uh, illumination and and you know evolution of thinking, and and thank God for the grace of Jesus. So. Well, I appreciate Jesus. That's right. I sure appreciate the time together. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Have a great day. Thank you too, Jonathan. You too. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Goodbye. Well, how cool is Lindsay? Grateful for her time. Find out more about her in the show notes, as well as how to find me, different places online. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, give some stars to this whole thing. I think it's helping people. You probably have friends that this will help, so don't uh, hesitate to shoot it to them. Okay, I hope you have a great week. I hope you go figure out how to love people without projecting all your issues onto them. Because you know you got issues, right? I got him too. Love's going to help us though. Peace.